1: Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome back to As a Woman. This week, we are talking about politics and law, and I have a very special guest interview with Rochelle Garza, who is running for Attorney General of Texas against Ken Paxton. Rochelle is a rock star who has dedicated her entire career to standing up for women's rights, and she is not about to stop now. I can't wait to share her with you but before we dive in to her interview, I want to first talk about this week's fertility in the news. It's no surprise to many of you that I have been talking about the interaction and the connection with abortion rights and all of your reproductive rights including IVF. And what we are seeing now is politicians outwardly saying that they oppose IVF and that they are open and willing to have restrictions on IVF. I think this is so important because I've had a lot of people tell me nobody wants to restrict or outlaw IVF, but the truth is a lot of people want to control your body. And so what we're really concerned about here is something that falls into the effect of personhood laws. When you say somebody can't have an abortion and you're trying to walk it back as early as possible, one of the things that you may do is result in... Defining life beginning at fertilization, thereby making embryos have a status of personhood. Well, if an embryo has personhood, can you grow it in culture? Can you freeze it? Can you biopsy it? Can you discard it if it's abnormal? And these aren't just hypothetical questions. When we look at countries, mostly that are governed by Catholic ideologies, some of them do have. Very strict IVF restrictions. And this means that the entire IVF process is so different. Mostly they limit the number that you can fertilize. So if I got 25 eggs from you, I can only fertilize three because anything that grows out, I'm going to put in your body. I can't freeze embryos. I can't test them. I can't discard them. And I can't transfer more than three without it being grossly unsafe even in that practice, high rates of multiple pregnancy and a high cost because I'm trashing 22 of your eggs. So we have a way now where IVF, in its modern practice, is quite safe and very effective. And if we allow these restrictions, we are going to see that IVF will be much harder to access. It will result in less success and a higher cost. So, I'm bringing this up for a few reasons. Number one is that the current governor of Georgia, Kemp, has already said he would support restrictions on IVF under the idea that it is not ethically sound. There's also a Senate candidate from New Hampshire who has said he also thinks IVF is a disgusting practice, I think, is the words that he said, and he would support restrictions or bans on it. And just to drive home the point, Mike Pence came out this week. There is speculation that he is going to be running for president for the Republican Party. And what did he say? I've got news for President Biden. Come January 22nd, we will have pro-life majorities in the House and Senate, and we'll be taking the cause of the right to life to every state house in America. So, If you think that they really want it to be left up to the states to decide what happens to your body, they don't. They want control. And if you think that reproductive autonomy is something that should differ, your ability to survive a pregnancy, you being forced to carry a pregnancy, even if you have cancer, other medical illnesses, a pregnancy may compromise your health and your life even if the baby is not going to make it because of birth defects, that should differ based on the state you live in. That is such unsafe and such a dangerous practice that it is truly, truly appalling. So for this week's Fertility in the News, I want you to know that IVF is on the ballot. People are making it very clear. And when someone tells you who they are and what they believe in, you should believe them. Because if we do not show up and vote for reproductive rights this November 8th, What is going to happen is we are going to see a complete 180 in this country. And some of the states like I live in right now, I'm in Texas, that have very strict restrictions. We're going to start to see that pushed out even more so. And it will extend into IVF care, contraceptive care, and more. All right. So for fertility in the news, the message is vote. Your local election does matter. So please take the time to research who you can vote for and make a plan. What day are you going to go? When does early voting start? When can you show up? So I am pleased to let you guys be introduced to Rochelle Garza. She is lovely and I just was so thrilled to be able to talk with her. And I'm so thrilled for you guys to get to know her more. She is an attorney and a lifelong fighter in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. So her journey of why she went into law was so interesting. She was, well, I'll let her tell you, but essentially she has spent her career fighting for the civil rights of children, of immigrants, and of families. She's even taken on Justice Brett Kavanaugh when as a federal judge, he decided against Jane Doe, which was a teen in an immigration detention, about her right to choose. And that story really changed the trajectory of Rochelle's career. Her work on that case resulted in something called the Garza Notice, which requires that detained teens be notified of their right to abortion free of retaliation and obstruction by the federal government. She graduated from the University of Houston Law Center and from Brown University with honors. She lives in Brownsville, Texas with her husband and her daughter and their dog. And you can find her on social media on Instagram at Rochelle M. Garza. So without further ado, here we go. Rochelle, thank you so much for joining us on the As A Woman podcast. I am so honored to have you here and share everything that you are accomplishing and everything you stand for with the audience. So thank you for making the time because I know you are so busy leading up to this election.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Natalie. I appreciate it. I would like to just start out by having you tell us a little bit about
1: your story. You know, how did you end up in law and politics and in this place running for attorney general? Like where did this start and where does your passion lie?
0: All of it starts for me uh, with my family. I'm I'm from South Texas. I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley which is right on the border with Mexico. I'm a fifth generation Texan from the region and I grew up with parents that were very hardworking, my dad went from yet an incredible story. He went from being a farmer to a public school teacher to a lawyer and then a judge. And my mother was the daughter of a World War II veteran and a really hardworking mom. So those values started at home for me. And I also grew up with a sibling with disabilities. My my oldest brother Robbie experienced a brain injury during childbirth. And oh my gosh. Well, he grew up with, with disabilities. He couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't see, but he knew our voices and he felt our love. And I, and I learned advocacy at home. I learned what that meant. I remember my mom fighting with the insurance company to get his wheelchair lift covered. Oh, so those could,
1: insurance companies.
0: <laughs> I know just to make sure he could go to school and go to church with us. And um. You know that's really what influenced me to become a lawyer and to to fight for for people that have been overlooked and left behind. And uh, I truly believe that we are all equal under the law. That's why I've uh, focused on uh, reproductive rights in particular and making sure that we have bodily autonomy and have the ability to decide for ourselves our own fates. Uh, and you know, Ken Paxton in particular is a pretty aggressive anti-choice extremist yeah. politician and has a lot of power that the Office of Attorney General gives him in the state of Texas. So um, unseating him would, would be a really big, meaningful change for, for Texans and, and really for the country uh, because he he likes to nationalize his agenda.
1: Well, you know, as the
0: University of Texas
1: says what starts here changes the world, but I do think a lot of states look to Texas for the lead. And so to your point, things that can change here one way or another, we see other states tend to follow. So I do think what you're doing is really incredible. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? When you use our code A-A-W, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Thank you, Quince. So you learned advocacy really young, which I think is one of the best ways to learn it is to watch somebody who you love, you know, go through something and really to feel it in your soul. But did you go into law purposefully to go into politics? Or did this segue happen because you realized on the legal end of it, you couldn't do enough? Like, what was that transition zone for you?
0: I mean, I don't think I ever had the intention of running for for political <laughs> office. I realized, you know, I'm a civil rights lawyer, and and it and it became really clear to me that if you want to protect people and you want to do more for for society, it, you really have to to get into politics and be a decision maker. You know, as as Ann Richards, the last governor of Texas, said, "If you are not at the table, you are on the menu." And that's how I look at running for office. I was nine weeks pregnant when the six-week abortion ban went into effect. And instead of running away, I ran into the fire and I decided to to run for attorney general and run against somebody who is so anti-choice that he is Litigating to stop doctors from providing life-saving care in the state of Texas uh, for people who need an abortion in an emergency room. I'm in this fight for for my daughter and for all of us. I mean, I think
1: as a physician who deals with this, you know, on a day-to-day basis, and I talk to patients every single day um, about what it means to be pregnant in the state of Texas, and I have patients with very, very desired pregnancies as a fertility doctor who are making really hard choices. I have more patients than I've ever had in my career walk away from their dreams of having a child because they feel like being pregnant is too dangerous, that it is something that, you know, maybe they have another kid at home and what if something happened to them? And I think it's really important to your point that we know these aren't just hypothetical situations. These are real life and death circumstances that any pregnancy, wanted or not, can go from, totally fine, to very unstable and an emergency in mere minutes, right? So pregnancy is not health neutral. And to have somebody sitting in a position of power in our state who wants to impose views without listening to the medical professionals or restricting people their own choice to say what happens to their body, it's really a scary, scary place. I love it if you would tell the audience, I know this seems like such a dumb question, but to those of us who are not in law and who are not in politics, maybe you can break down what is the attorney general? Like, what does that mean? And why is that important? And particularly when it comes to this issue of women's rights, why is that such a crucial race here in Texas?
0: So the, the attorney general, at least in the state of Texas, is the chief legal officer of the state, uh, and, and its role is mostly in the civil realm, you know, collecting child support, protecting consumers, and making sure that, that people are not scammed and taken advantage of by price gouging corporations. But what we have happening in Texas is we have an attorney general who is very extreme on, on social issues. So he has done everything in his power to undermine access to abortion care in the state. He defended the six-week abortion ban that we had in effect last year, and he defended it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Following the fall of Roe, he has threatened to challenge marriage equality, and he can do that because he has the courts on his side. Uh, he can pick whichever court he wants in the state of Texas and take that decision to the Fifth Circuit, which is the Mm -hmm. most conservative circuit court in the country. Mm -hmm. And now he has all the votes he needs at the Supreme Court level to enact whatever he wants. (laughs) When I tell people this, it's kind of hard to believe, but the the state of Texas and, and in this position in particular has a lot of power when it's in the wrong hands and, and it's been misused and misguided. You know, in addition to all of that, Campaxin is under criminal indictment and has been for seven years without trial. Unseating him, this is really the queen on the chessboard, unseating him will be a game changer in terms of protecting people's civil rights and in terms of not prosecuting physicians that are just trying to do their jobs and save lives. Uh, that's that's why I'm running for this position is, is it's important to return this office to the people of Texas and just do the job. Take care of people, take care of families and, and communities and make sure and we're focusing on the things that matter the most. I think that is just so
1: well said because I hear people, you know, argue the other end and they say, well, there's this exception for maternal life, but what they're missing is what do you have to do to prove that somebody's life is at stake? And you have to consult hospital legal teams and how at stake does it have to be if you have a condition that inevitably will become unstable? I am having friends who are physicians wait until their patients become unstable before the legal team feels like they are allowed to intervene for fear of prosecution. And that's not just a hypothetical, that's real. And I think that Mm -hmm. this war on our bodily rights and, and this ability to make the decision that's right for you and your family and should be made with your own guiding moral values and your own health considerations and your family and your doctor and not be made by somebody who has no idea what it is like.
0: Of course. And as a physician, you shouldn't have to check with your legal department before providing care. It's a very simple thing. A doctor and the patient that that relationship relationship should be respected uh, because, you, you know, i I commend you for for providing care and and doing this hard work. I've I've spoken with physicians across the state and I've heard some really hard stories. This is this is a dire situation that we have in the state of Texas when it comes to access to just basic medical care and being able to make a decision that is best for for the individual, for yourself and your family.
1: I am worried, and I'd love to hear your professional take on this, that if Ken Paxton is reelected, that we are going to see, you know, just this current abortion ban is the tip of the iceberg, that we're going to see certain types of contraception, emergency contraception and IUDs becoming on the table. We're going to see IVF and fertility treatments start to be looked at if they should be legal or not. And I feel like this is just the start even though it's a huge and very impactful thing. I feel like this is just the start of looking at all of these you know, rights when it comes to reproduction and we're going to see it become even more restricted. I mean, do you feel that way too? I feel like so much is at stake right now.
0: Absolutely. And it's not just reproductive rights. It's not just access to abortion care or contraception. This is gonna impact a lot of other civil rights that we have considered settled like the right to travel. Uh, Kim Paxton has threatened to sue anyone who is helping someone leave the state of Texas to access an abortion. And we have the extreme fringes of the Texas legislature threatening to pass laws to stop people from traveling out of state. There is a constitutional right to travel. No one is a prisoner in their own state. So- Winning this election, which which we will win, we have a path. Um, it is the closest statewide race in the state of Texas, and it is one of the most competitive races nationally. Winning this race will be a game changer in terms of, of protecting important civil rights and being a check on these extreme fringes of the legislature. So as attorney general, I would be able to issue a legal opinion saying, Restricting someone's right to travel out of state is unconstitutional. And although it wouldn't have the effect of law, it would have an impact on what the agencies across the state would do. So that's an important check. I could choose to litigate or not litigate when it comes to some of these unconstitutional proposals. It really is the last stand for civil rights, and we are so close to winning. We're within a few points of unseating Ken Paxton. We're so proud yeah. of you, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's it's been a journey. I've, I've been doing it with you know with a baby. I had a baby at the end of March, and you know went back on the road after three weeks. And I truly am in this for her and for the future of the state. I I really just cannot allow this dire situation to get worse. I would love,
1: I mean, I just, I commend you so much and I respect your drive. I mean, I think every physician who might listen knows exactly what it's like to go back to work at three weeks after you give birth, because sometimes it's just what you need to do for the greater good. I love for you because people who don't know you, you know, you had a really notable case when it comes to reproductive rights. So it's not like you're just jumping on this bandwagon because it's trendy or popular right now. You've been, advocating for people's autonomy for their bodies and to make choices that are right for them your entire career isn't that isn't
0: that right yeah that's right um you know back in 2017 i was in private practice in south texas and i had a case of a of a young woman she was 17 years old and she was from central america and she found herself in immigration detention down there and didn't learn she was pregnant until she was in the facility and decided that she did not want to proceed with the pregnancy. And the Trump administration stepped in and denied her the ability to travel to enact her abortion decision. Uh, I was her attorney on the the bypass case, and I was her guardian. So we, we litigated that case on her behalf to make sure that she could access abortion care. uh, And and the case ended up going up to the Supreme Court eventually. But before it got there, we had to beat back Ken Paxton, who tried to meddle in the case. and, And Brett Kavanaugh, who is now sitting on the Supreme Court. He was on the appellate court at the time and made a decision that would have forced our client, Jane, to have a child against her will. And I testified against him in his confirmation hearings in 2018, because I knew that he would vote to overturn Roe. And he did. So we we won for this young woman, we made sure that she got the care that she needed. But, but it, we went even further. The Garza notice is a result of my work on that case. And all teens in immigration detention are given this notice that they have a right to access abortion care. And what's even more incredible is that they're given that access. So if they find themselves in a state where abortion is not legal, they're moved to a different state where they can enact their decision. And that's in effect today.
1: That's amazing. I mean, that's huge. And I think, you know, it just shows that forcing someone to give birth, because that's really what this says, right? It's not pro-choice, pro-life. It's all about forced birth, forcing somebody to give birth regardless of the circumstance or what risks their own health may have or their socioeconomic status or if they desire that pregnancy or not has huge consequences for the longevity of somebody's life. And it even has huge consequences when it comes to survivability and mental health. The CDC releases data about maternal health mortality. And we know the United States is not great when it comes to where we rank. And from 2017 to 2019, so pre-COVID, the number one cause of death, either in pregnancy or within a year postpartum, is mental health related, suicide or overdose or substance use issues. And I can only imagine what's going to happen to numbers like that when people are forced to give birth to pregnancies against their will.
0: I, I I worry about that as well. I worry also about the inability to track some of the this data or some of the stories that I've been hearing across the state because people are just not tracking it. It's not people aren't coming forward. You know, I, one story I heard that was particularly upsetting was from a physician that told me that their patient was told that the brain did not develop in 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 the fetus, uh, and they, Remained pregnant until about seven months, and then had a C-section and delivered a a dead fetus. So I can only imagine. And and obviously, my first question is, you know, what is the emotional toll in this individual? Right. And I can only imagine what that was like for that person. I can also only imagine what it's like to pay a medical bill, knowing that you didn't take home a child. Right.
1: There was no choice, no chance that choice, you know, your child was going to survive. It was an unsurvivable outcome, yet you were forced to carry it on and undergo risk and expense and your own health. It's really scary. Besides women's rights and reproductive health, which we could sit here and talk about, what would you say is, you know, the other big top issues that you want at least people in Texas to be aware of or aware of your stance?
0: You know, the Attorney General's Office, as I mentioned earlier, is supposed to be the people's lawyer. It's supposed to look out for everyday Texans, for families and communities. And and that's done through, you know, protecting people's civil rights. You know, access to to abortion care is one of those civil rights. Um, So is access to voting. You know we've seen a lot of challenges to the right to vote, and a lot of acts to undermine our democracy. and And Ken Paxton, in particular, is is really bad on this issue. Uh, once he saw how close we we were in the polling, he issued a letter to elections officials across the state of Texas. Telling them that they should open up ballots for inspection to whomever requests it. And this is against state and federal law. He is literally asking people to break the law uh, because he doesn't want to lose. And if, and when he loses, when he loses, when. he wants to challenge that loss. And it doesn't just have implications for for our race, it has implications for others and and has implications for what the future is going to hold with regards to our elections and our democracy.
1: So what I hear you saying that I want to make sure my audience hears also is that, you know, all of your civil rights are really on the line in this election. And it's not like just a circumstance of, oh, things are going to stay the same, that you and I both anticipate that if Ken Paxton is reelected, things are going to get worse than they are right now.
0: Absolutely. Unfortunately, that is the reality we are facing. So
1: I hear people say this all the time, and I don't know if you do, but I have friends and colleagues who will say, well, Texas is such a conservative state. It's such a red state. So there's no need for me to go vote because my vote doesn't matter. The Republican candidate is going to win for whatever position we are talking about. I obviously think, no, that's like how you make democracy work is to show up and to vote. But I'm sure you feel very strongly about that issue. So what do you want to say to people who maybe have heard that or said that themselves, that they don't feel like their vote really
0: matters in a conservative state? I mean, well, with regards to Texas in particular, I mean, Texas, it's a non-voting state. First and foremost. And when you look at the state of Texas, it for 60% of the population of Texas are people of color. And nearly 40% are Latino. There is a lot of political power in, in communities, in these communities, in my community. Uh, people need to go out and vote. You need to make sure you're voting because The the actions that all of these elected officials are taking are having a direct impact on our lives. So, we need to make sure that we take our seat at the table so we can take ourselves off the menu.
1: Totally agree. So, please, if you're listening to this, you need to know where you vote. You need to make a game plan. Can you early vote in your area? How are you going to get there? How are you going to arrange it with work? But, you need a plan. To mm-hmm. vote because your vote does matter. Probably in this election more than it has for many many years. I would
0: say, absolutely. Uh, early voting starts October twenty fourth in the state of Texas, and election day is November the eighth. And get out and vote. Make sure that you know who's on your ballot. Uh, at least in Texas, you can take in a sample ballot with you so that you know who you're voting for, and and make sure you vote. Up and down the ballot, because if we've learned anything in the last few years, it's that local elections are absolutely critical as well. So knowing who's running for school board, for your city council, for your county, you need to pay attention to those races as well. Uh, We can win these statewide races. We're going to win this one in particular, because all the factors are there. Um, But I would be able to be a good partner to local communities that are just trying to protect their constituency. So uh, please vote up and down the ballot, vote Democratic and, and vote for me, for Rochelle Garza. Yes,
1: please. Rochelle, I'd love it if you can tell everybody, you know, where they can find you, your website, get more information, where they can follow you on social. And if you have any last thoughts or, you know, parting words of wisdom for everybody, we would love to hear it. And again, just thank you so much for taking your time to be here and just share your thoughts with us. And we're just so impressed by everything you're doing. And I'm so proud to stand behind you. Well, thank you so much.
0: Uh, you can follow me on social media. I'm on all platforms, including TikTok, Rochelle yes. M Garza. And, you know, if you can't donate to my campaign, which obviously we we would love that. Um, Follow us and share our message. Make sure that you vote yourself, that you take at least five to 10 people to vote. You can harass your friends. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to make sure that we come out in big numbers and that we win this election.
1: I love that. And I think that's such a good point that if you can donate money, donate it because we want Ken Paxton gone. But if you can't, there are other very valuable things you can do, which includes. Talking about this, not avoiding hard conversations with your family and friends, showing up to vote, taking people to vote and sharing on social media. So if somebody for some reason hasn't heard about you yet and they don't know that you're running against Ken Paxton and that we should all vote for you, we can help spread your message. So I can't wait to celebrate when you win. And thank you so much for spending the time with us here on the As Woman podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: All right, friends. Well, I hope after hearing Rochelle speak, you're even more fired up because this race matters more than anything. And I'm just personally so proud of her for taking on this incumbent. Ken Paxton has held a lot of power in the state of Texas. And I've heard so many people say that voting doesn't matter in this state. And I really, really want to tell you that it does. We can turn Texas blue. I really believe it. But you have to show up. You have to vote for people like Rochelle for attorney general and Beto for governor. And we have to know who we're voting for in our local elections so that we can have the best chance of having a government that really reflects us and our views. Having a small minority be in control of everything is absolutely so unfair and so dangerous. And I'm just very fearful about where this country will be, especially for the state of women and people with uteruses, if we do not all show up to vote. But let's dive into this week's For Fertility's Sake. This is our weekly Q&A. So every week on Instagram, on Mondays at Natalie Crawford, MD, I post a question box where I answer some of your top questions. You can also call and leave questions on the voicemail. That number is 657 229 three six seven two and we will answer some of your voicemail questions as well. Those have a much higher chance of being answered if you want to call and ask that way. All right so question number one what can short periods mean in your 20s? Well anytime you have a short period it can mean a variety of things, one of which could be, problems with your thyroid or your pituitary gland. It can be hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is also where your hormones are not being secreted correctly from the brain. And it can also be caused by running out of eggs. So one of the top causes of having shorter cycles, which are closer together, is actually having a low egg count. Things like thyroid and prolactin abnormalities are much more common. However, you'd hate to miss somebody in their 20s running out of eggs. So I would recommend a simple AMH blood test to make sure that your count is not low, because even though you might be remote from wanting to get pregnant, you certainly could be at an age where you could freeze your eggs or do something different if you found out. And if you did have a thyroid or prolactin abnormality, you could very well get on medication for that to make sure. That your body is overall healthy. All right. Next is, when do you stop trying? I think that is such a hard question. And I tell every patient, I try to answer this one really honestly. When you should stop trying is a very personal question. And it's dictated by a lot of different factors. Some of that includes financial, emotional, physical, and time. When it comes to medically, when do I recommend people stop trying? And I'm going to presume we're talking about trying with their own eggs. It's when we are getting to the point where I don't feel like there's much difference that we can do to get to the outcome we want. We've either done enough transfers or so many cycles that we can't find normal embryos. Overall, though, if you're making eggs, even if you're older or have a low egg count and you have the resources You can often do multiple cycles to find that right embryo to then transfer and implant. It's a lot harder when you have multiple transfers that are not working. When you've gone through four or five transfers without success, we really want to think about have we done everything possible? Are there different protocol surgeries? What can we think of that's outside the box to try to change this for you? And then, very often, the decision to change gears and look at things like donor egg is just made purely from a financial and emotional physical point. We don't think that our body can get us to where we need to be in either the time we have or the money we have, but your doctor should be really open about this with you. And if you're considering, should I be done with this? I really challenge you to bring that up and ask your doctor directly. All right, this question says, I'm 41 and I'm going into my second round of IVF. Is PGT testing worth the risk? I think absolutely, especially at age 41. At age 41, you know that the majority of your eggs, 80% of your eggs are genetically abnormal. Now, what I would not want to do is be wasting time and money transferring embryos That are not going to make it into a baby. And so you're either going to miscarry them or they're just going to fail implantation. And so knowing the one out of the five embryos that is normal is going to give you a much higher success rate and allow you to move on to other retrievals if none of those embryos are normal. Personally, I feel like pre implantation genetic testing has changed the game for people who are age 38 and older, and I strongly recommend it in this age group. All right, next is underweight women and fertility. I don't know if that's a full question, but if the question is, does being underweight impact your fertility? The answer is yes. So when you are underweight, one is that your body's not convinced that's a good time to be pregnant. So it is a stressful state, but what happens is that feedback of having low body weight, and especially if you're losing weight or you're not taking in many calories or you're exercising a lot, trying to maintain that thinness, the brain will not send out the signals of FSH and LH correctly. And even if you're ovulating, sometimes we see people who are ovulating irregularly and it's a hypothalamic dysfunction, meaning the pituitary gland is not sending off signals correctly because it's getting signals from higher in the brain that it's not a good time to be pregnant. And that can take years to overcome if you're in amenorrhea. So if your periods are irregular or totally absent, it can actually take years to overcome that. And I think that your body wants to know that it can nourish another human being. So it's really important to make sure that you're allowing yourself calories and not just exercising like crazy because your body needs that weight to grow a pregnancy. All right, this question is, is it better to get an embryo implanted in the same month as the egg extraction or in the next month? Honestly, it depends on your situation. At most places, if you are transferring an embryo in the same month, then you're not doing genetic testing on it. And we have to make sure the uterine environment is correct, including that you're not at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation and that your estrogen and progesterone is not very high. For me, this is a very young patient who only wants one kid and who is not going to make more than 10 eggs. Typically, that's not the right person, meaning if you're young, you tend to make more eggs than that and would be compromising in your future family if we just go for a fresh transfer. But that is sometimes the idea for a minimal stimulation protocol is doing a fresh transfer. So a transfer five days after retrieval in somebody who potentially could make more eggs. It's not a terrible strategy if you're just looking for one child, but anybody who's done IVF will tell you there is strength in numbers and you just do not know what you don't know. And so I am a fan of trying to only put you through that egg retrieval one time versus not getting as many eggs purposefully so that you can do a transfer and then having to spend more money along this entire process. All right, tips for PIO injections. The soreness and pain, I was not sure that I would have. What can I do? Everybody is going to say something different. PIO is progesterone and oil. These are injections that go typically in your butt for... IVF, like with the embryo transfer. You don't need them during the egg retrieval process, just the embryo transfer, but they are thicker and they can be more painful. Foam rolling or a Theragun can be very beneficial afterwards. As can like warming, like using a little like heat pad on the area, that can help. I mean, some people like cooling, but I find if you cool, you constrict your blood vessels. So I actually prefer a little bit of a warmness on the area and then pinching the skin. So giving a nice hard pinch so that you won't feel the needle as much. But everybody has their own tips and tricks. So mine are foam rolling, Theragun, and kind of using a heat pack on the area to try to soften things up. It's temporary. You can do it. It's important. If you want to know more about the different types of progesterone, listen to the embryo transfer episode. All right. Well, if you have questions, again, for fertility's sake, I appreciate your questions. You can ask them every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call and leave a voicemail 657-229-3672. Thanks friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie CrawfordMD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.